in an article titled, Everybody Lies, How Google Search Reveals Our Darkest Secrets, U.S. data scientist and analyst Seth Stevens Davidowitz analyzed anonymous Google search results and what he uncovered was disturbing truths about our desires, about our beliefs, about our fears, about our prejudices. The article is all about what we can learn about ourselves, about what we can learn about humanity from the things we ask and from the things that we seek online. And I'm not just talking about all the dark stuff that's out there on the internet. I'm not talking about all the inappropriate stuff and the inappropriate searches on Google. We all know that all of that garbage exists. His study goes much deeper than all of that junk. And through his study, Seth discovered all kinds of things about what we're thinking, about what we're feeling, about what we're desiring, about what we're fearing as human beings. He discovered that now, more than ever, we are interested in mental illness and human sexuality and abortion and religion and health. And he discovered that people will admit things online that they wouldn't admit to a person or a group. That people will admit things online that they would not admit face-to-face with someone else. He discovered that people taking online surveys will be totally honest because they are alone. Here's what he said. How, therefore, can we learn what our fellow humans are really thinking and doing? Answer, big data. Certain online sources get people to admit things they would not admit anywhere else. They serve as a digital truth serum. Think of Google searches. Remember the conditions that make people more honest? Online? Check. Alone? Check. No person administering a survey? Check. The power in Google data is that people tell the giant search engine things they might not tell anyone else. Google was invented so that people could learn about the world, not so researchers could learn about people, but it turns out the trails we leave as we seek knowledge on the internet are tremendously revealing. Google search data and other wellsprings of truth on the internet give us an unprecedented look into the darkest corners of the human psyche. This is, at times, I admit, difficult to face. The article is based on his book titled, Everybody Lies, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And it's a fascinating look into human beings and how the internet reveals our prejudices, how the internet reveals our thoughts about intimacy, how it reveals our fears and our curiosities about politics, our curiosities about religion, how it reveals what we think. And what we believe, and what we ask Google at 3 a.m. in the morning when we can't sleep. Google search is revealing the human heart. It's giving us an unprecedented look into the darkest corners of the human psyche. Google search is revealing what's going on inside our collective hearts and minds. We're actually confessing our sins to Google. That's what we're doing. Think about it. 
That's what we're, what we're doing. We're confessing our sins to Google. We're confessing our desires, confessing our fears, confessing our struggles. So Google search is, is revealing our fears, like our fears about the future. How will we pay for our kids' college education? What is that pain in my side? Is it a cancer symptom? I better Google cancer symptom ribs. And the data is revealing practical day-to-day questions that we ask too, like what diet works best? How many calories are there in a Starbucks Frappuccino? What's the best chocolate chip cookie recipe? Is Chick-fil-A open on Sundays? These are real questions, especially that last one. Real curiosities that we have, real heart exposure stuff. And what we'll see in the Gospel of Mark today, and turn to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't yet, but what we'll see in the Gospel of Mark today and what we can learn from Google search data is this big idea. Just pour your heart out to Jesus. Just pour your heart out to Jesus, just like you do with Google. See, that's the privilege we have as God's children. For those of us who are in union with Christ, we can just barge in and pour our heart out to God. You can just barge right into God's presence. Get out of my way, I'm coming. And just pour your heart out to Him. You can tell Him what's on your mind. You can tell Him what's breaking your heart and what's got you stressed out just like you do with Google, just like you do with Google search. I mean, what do we do with Google search? We just start typing into that little box, don't we? It may be 3 a.m. and we're wide awake, and what do we do? We grab our iPhones and we search for things like U.S. Open Leaderboard 2018 and Halo Infinite, Kate Spade Death, How Did Anthony Bourdain Die? Those were the top Google searches as of 2018. And people just typed in the words. They weren't worried about grammar. They weren't worried about spell check. They just started typing what was on their mind and what was on their heart. And that's all that prayer is. Just type in what you're seeking. Type in what's on your mind, what's on your heart. And so here's what you do. When you see that flashing cursor, you just start typing out your request to Jesus. That's prayer. And that's what a blind man who begs for a living will teach us about Jesus today. So look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46, and hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
So Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem like we saw last week where he knows the cross awaits. He knows suffering awaits in Jerusalem. But on the way there, Jesus passes through Jericho and a blind man named Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is in town. And so Bartimaeus is just sitting on the side of the road, reduced to a life of holding up a cardboard sign and begging for money. This was his profession, begging. Bartimaeus was a professional beggar holding up the proverbial cardboard sign with amazing penmanship. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but cardboard signs that people hold up on the side of the road usually have impeccable penmanship. Great block letters. And I'm not trying to make fun of any person that's held up a sign on the side of the road. I'm just making an observation. I really think that deep down inside we're all artists and we kind of forsake that as children. But when you look at these signs, there is impeccable penmanship. They're written in great block letters. So here he is. Bartimaeus is a professional beggar holding up a proverbial cardboard sign with amazing penmanship. And he's asking for help. Because he had no choice. He's blind. This is all he could do. He's a professional beggar. And his profession was actually preparing him for his encounter with Jesus. So he begins by crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But Bartimaeus gets rebuked by many people, Mark tells us, just like the little children that we saw earlier in chapter 10 when the disciples were rebuking the parents and telling them, keep your kids away. Bartimaeus gets rebuked as well. People in the crowd tell Bartimaeus to hush, hush, be quiet. But Bartimaeus is desperate. Nothing's going to stop him now. This is his chance to have an audience with Jesus. So Bartimaeus yells even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, though blind, sees Jesus more clearly than the disciples and the crowds do. Think about that. He's blind, but he sees Jesus more clearly than others. Two times Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, meaning he believes that Jesus is the promised Davidic ruler who was promised to come by all the Old Testament prophets. Bartimaeus has connected the dots here in the Old Testament with what he was hearing about Jesus. He put two and two together. He realized that Jesus was the promised Messiah. David's son who was to come. Bartimaeus knows who Jesus is, so he cries out for mercy. Bartimaeus knew his Bible. Bartimaeus knew Isaiah chapter 35, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Bartimaeus knew Isaiah chapter 35 and here comes Isaiah chapter the Isaiah chapter 35 Messiah in living color but not in living color for Bartimaeus cuz he's blind but soon he would see Jesus in high def I mean think about it the first person Bartimaeus would see after his healing was Jesus he had heard about Isaiah 35 his whole life and then Isaiah 35 power walks by him and heals him. And when he finally sees, Jesus comes into focus in high def. Please understand that Bartimaeus had a lot of theological knowledge. He knew his Bible well. He had worked his way through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He knew all about the son of David. 
And he connected the dots that Jesus was the son of David that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. He would get an A plus on any theology exam. But Bartimaeus knew that knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Bartimaeus knew that you can know all the Sunday school answers. You can complete all of your Awana books. You can have a PhD in systematic theology and still not see your need of Jesus. Bartimaeus knew that you can be born again and still not really see and grasp your deep need for a Savior every day of your life. So Bartimaeus, the blind guy, connecting all the dots of the Old Testament and realizing that Jesus is the Messiah, he does something here that every single Christian will have to do every single day for the rest of their lives. He reached out for Jesus. He called out for Jesus. Understand this, Grace. There will never be a year, a month, a week, a day, a moment when you don't need Jesus. You will always be in desperate need of Jesus. Always. I mean, get used to it. This is how the Christian life works. Discipleship is basically moving from one crisis in your life to another. And so a crisis pops up, you cry out to Jesus, he intervenes, then there might be a moment of relative peace, and then another crisis pops up, and you cry out to Jesus, and he intervenes, and then a moment of relative peace, and then another crisis, and then a moment of peace. On and on it goes, rinse and repeat, that's Christianity. That's discipleship. That's life, this side of heaven. That's grace. Jack Miller said, grace is not for achievers. It's for the bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who have nothing, who need all things, who only know how to beg. That's discipleship. Disciples only know how to beg But as you grow spiritually, you begin to see, you begin to really understand that you are just as desperate for Jesus in those relative moments of peace. As you grow, as you become smaller in your own eyes, you realize that you are always desperate for Jesus, even if there is no crisis in your life. You begin to see that there is never a moment, not one single moment in your life where you are not absolutely desperate and needy for Jesus and his grace. And so you suddenly realize what communion with the Holy Spirit is like. Utter dependence. And when you begin to realize that you are always desperate, guess what? You start to really live. Right? We think being utterly desperate all the time would be a terrible, miserable thing. But you know, that's when you really start to live, when you realize that you are always desperate. And that never changes. That's when you begin to experience freedom, true freedom. The pressure's off. Because there's always pressure, right? Even when there is no pressing pressure, there's always pressure. But the pressure's off now because you begin to see that It's all riding on Jesus. It always has and it always will be. You realize that you are absolutely helpless and only Jesus can help you and then you just collapse into him. You collapse into his promises. 
you begin to learn that prayer is quite simple and relatively easy. You just cry help and you leave it all with him. Help. You leave it all with the one who has invited you to dump all of your burdens and all of your cares on him because he cares for you. You leave it all with the one who gathers all of your tears in a bottle and who records all of your sorrows in a moleskin journal. That's what David said in Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Jesus keeps track of how many times you toss and turn in bed at night when you are stressed out. Isn't that amazing? Jesus actually keeps track of every single time that you toss and turn in your bed at night because you're stressed out about something. That's how much you mean to him. Jesus collects every tear that falls from your eyes and he keeps them in a bottle. That's how much you mean to him. Jesus records all of your struggles and all of your pain in a journal. That's how much you mean to him. Jesus stops what he's doing and he writes down all of your pain and all of your heartache. And after hearing Bartimaeus cry out repeatedly for mercy, Mark tells us Jesus stopped. Bartimaeus couldn't see Jesus stop, but what a beautiful moment it would have been if he could have seen it. Jesus stopped. Verse 49 is one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. And Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped for Bartimaeus and then told the crowd to send for him. And then the crowd speaks words to Bartimaeus that stopped his heart. Words that he would treasure in his heart forever. Look at verse 49. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Bartimaeus' heart must have stopped when he heard these words. Take heart, get up, he is calling you. What beautiful words. This is vintage Jesus, y'all, right here. This is vintage Jesus. Mercy and kindness and gentleness and compassion. Real compassion for real sinners. This is vintage Jesus. If this is not how you picture Jesus, you have been lied to. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Spurgeon said, commenting on a passage in Matthew that he was preaching. He said, if you want to summarize the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered into this one sentence. He was moved with compassion. That's vintage Jesus right there. This is your Savior, Christian. That's how he relates to us. Compassion. He is moved with compassion when he sees us. So when Bartimaeus hears that Jesus called for him, he throws down his cardboard sign down on the ground, his sign that read, Blind, please help, God bless Bartimaeus throws his proverbial cardboard side down on the ground and he throws his cloak off because he does not want to be encumbered by anything. And then he hightails it to Jesus. A blind man takes off running to Jesus. You have to picture this. Picture Bartimaeus with his arms out, hands out, reaching and grabbing, trying to feel something. See him running up to Jesus, reaching out until he feels his robe, touches his hands, touches his face. Bartimaeus sees Jesus with his hands. And then Jesus speaks to him. 
what do you want me to do for you? Now, did you notice that Jesus asked Bartimaeus the exact same question that he asked the disciples earlier, what we looked at last week? Do you remember what we saw last week? How James and John asked Jesus to fulfill their request. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, what do you want me to do for you? That's exactly what Jesus asked Bartimaeus. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why repeat that question? Why does Mark include all of this in his gospel? Because Mark wants us to see the contrast. The disciples are with Jesus. They can see him, but they can't really see him. They want to ride shotgun in the kingdom. They want to be numero uno. And then there's Bartimaeus. He's blind. He can't see, and yet he sees. He sees with the eyes of faith. He knows that he needs mercy. And so he comes to Jesus empty-handed. He just holds out the empty hands of faith. The disciples, on the other hand, grab for power with clenched fists and white knuckles. And then Bartimaeus just holds out the empty hands of faith, relaxed and not tight-fisted. So Mark wants us to see the contrast here between Bartimaeus and the disciples. But Mark has also done something else here in order to point out this contrast. Mark gives us extra information about Bartimaeus. He tells us in verse 46, if you'll see, that Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus. So Bartimaeus' dad's name is Timaeus. Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus. But that's exactly what Bartimaeus' name means. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. The first part of his name, Bar, means son. The second part is Timaeus. So he's the son of Timaeus. So the man named son of Timaeus is the son of Timaeus. The son of Timaeus is named the son of Timaeus. Now, were Bartimaeus' parents just lazy? Were they not Creative with baby names? Picture the conversation they had at the hospital after Timaeus' wife gave birth. This is kind of how I see it. Mrs. Timaeus says, what should we name the baby, Timaeus? And Timaeus says, I don't know, honey. I can't decide. I really like the name Darkon, but you don't like that, so maybe we should just name him after your dad. I don't know. She responds, I don't know either. Me either. But we need to pick a name quick. The nurse will be in soon, and we have to fill out the birth certificate. Timaeus what do you want to name your son? Timaeus, your son, name please. And Timaeus says, how about son of Timaeus? Perhaps that's what happened. I don't know. But what I do know is that Mark added this detail for a reason. Now the question before us is why? Why does Mark give us all this extra info on Bartimaeus? Why does Mark tell us what Bartimaeus, tell us that Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus? Here's why. Because the name Timaeus means honor. So Bartimaeus' name actually means son of honor. This blind man is called the son of honor. And in a chapter where all of these people are seeking their own honor, their own glory, we have a blind man whose name is son of honor who comes to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. In Mark chapter 10, where we have the rich young ruler and James and John all clamoring for honor and glory and reputation, we have the son of honor who comes to Jesus with only the empty hands of faith. 
The rich young ruler, if you remember, thought he earned honor through his obedience to the law. And the disciples, James and John, wanted positions of honor in the kingdom of God. And the other disciples got mad when James and John beat them to the punch and yelled shotgun before it even crossed their minds. So really, all 12 of the disciples want the best seats in the house, the seats of honor in the kingdom of God. And then there's this blind man sitting in the dirt on the side of the road, and he is the one sitting in the place of honor. And his name just so happens to be Son of Honor. And so the last few sections in Mark, when you pull back and look at it, it looks like this. You have the young children who come. They're brought to Jesus. They come with nothing. They're helpless. And Mark told us they were rebuked. And then after that account, we had the rich young ruler who was all about self-exaltation. And then we saw Jesus speaking of his humility, how he would be mocked and spit on and put to death. And then we saw James and John who also were all about self-exaltation. And now we come to Bartimaeus, who also comes with nothing, helpless, and he, like the little children, is rebuked. Mark is painting a picture of discipleship here for us. Mark is painting a picture of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Mark wants us to see the way of the kingdom, that suffering precedes glory. That the way up is down. That to win, you have to lose. To live, you have to die. That you have to embrace your helplessness and you have to become like a child and you have to come with nothing. You have to reach out the empty hands of faith and not grasp for power. You have to become a nobody. You have to be one of the last, the lost, and the least. That's discipleship. Don't miss what Mark is saying here. True greatness means coming to Jesus, confessing that you have nothing. You have nothing to bring that's going to impress him or wow him or make you move further up in the line. You have nothing to bring. True greatness is coming to Jesus empty-handed. True greatness is coming to Jesus with only your need, with only your sin. But the disciples weren't seeing it. They were blind. They were among the inner circle with Jesus, and still that wasn't enough. And Peter, James, and John were in the top three of the inner circle, but that still wasn't enough for James and John. As we saw last week, they wanted to be in the top two. It wasn't enough to be in the top three. We want to be top two. They were close to Jesus in the inner circle, but they were not content because they wanted better seats. They were blind. And in stark contrast to them, we have this blind guy, Bartimaeus who only wanted two things, mercy and sight. And he rightly called out for mercy first. If he received mercy and no healing, he would be content, but he got both. He got mercy and healing. Twice Bartimaeus asks for mercy, to not get what he deserves. So what he is doing, he's confessing that he's a sinner. He's confessing his sins to Jesus. He needs mercy. Then he begs to get what he doesn't deserve, which is healing. In and of himself, Bartimaeus knows he's not good. He isn't owed healing by anyone, but he asks for it. And he asks the most caring and compassionate man in the world to heal him. So think about it. Bartimaeus has this incurable illness. He's blind. And then here comes the only person in the world who could heal him. Don't read past this too fast. What an incredible moment in history. 
And because he approached Jesus in humility, Bartimaeus got something else too, honor. He got the very thing that James and John were fighting over. And he got it by crying out for mercy, not crying out for front row seats. If Bartimaeus can make another cardboard sign and sit on the side of the road, I think it would read, with the proverbial impeccable penmanship that all of these cardboard signs have, I think it would read, just pour your heart out to Jesus. That's exactly what he did. Bartimaeus was a beggar, and his profession, if you will, prepared him for his encounter with Jesus. He was used to begging. So when Jesus came by, Bartimaeus did what he did best. He begged for mercy. He begged for healing. And that's really what prayer is. It's begging. Prayer is just begging Jesus because you are needy. Prayer is holding up a cardboard sign to Jesus that says, please help. And Jesus heard his prayer. Jesus was focused solely on Bartimaeus in this moment. He had Jesus' full attention. Bartimaeus had Jesus' full attention. And that's how Jesus is with you when you pray. It's as if you are the only person in the world talking to him at that moment. When you pray, when you prayed this morning, if you did, it was as if Jesus stopped everything that he was doing, looked at you and said, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus just sat there and he listened to you as if you were the only person who had his ear. And that happens every single time you pray. Complete, undivided attention. That's prayer. Having God's complete, undivided attention. Wow. That kind of makes you want to pray, doesn't it? Having God's complete, undivided attention, doesn't that kind of make you want to pray? You'll listen to me as if I'm the only person in the world talking to you? I kind of want to talk to you now. You can have God's complete, undivided attention. The God who created Saturn. I mean, think about this. He made all kinds of planets, and then one at, in that moment, he said, one of these needs rings around it. The God who made Saturn, this planet with rings around it, when you pray, he stops and listens to you as if you were the only person talking to him in that moment. His complete and undivided attention. That happens every single time you pray. And so prayer is just reaching out your hands and taking hold of Jesus. It's Jesus taking you by the hand and helping you as you walk. I mean, we can do that, right? Just reach out and receive help. We can do that, right, Grace? You ever needed help getting out of a bed or a chair? Someone comes and you ask for help. They take you by the hand and they lift you up. That's prayer. Help, Jesus, help me get up. Prayer is just taking all your needs, all your problems, all of your cares, and putting them into words. Prayer is just taking all of your needs and all of your problems and all of your cares and putting them into words, just typing them into the search engine. Your prayers don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be eloquent. You just speak. You just type. You don't worry about getting the words right. You don't worry about grammar. You just do like you do when you get on Google. Help me, Jesus. Jesus isn't capitalized. It's not a formal sentence, but the period. You just type, help me, Jesus, all lowercase letters. I'm so scared, Lord. Why, God? Why is this happening? Forgive me. I need you, Holy Spirit. That's it. Google search engine prayers. 
not cleaned up, not perfect, not incorrect grammar, misspelled words, just typed, just spoken out of a hurting or stressed or curious heart. And sometimes all of your needs and all of your problems and all of your cares are just put into small words like help. Sometimes all you can say, all you can get out is help. And you have a Savior, a Redeemer, who loves to hear you cry out to Him like that. Alec Motier said, He loves us to talk to Him. He says, I want you to tell me. Please, Open your heart to me. Let me know how you feel. Let me know where you hurt. Let me know what you want. What do you want me to do for you? An essential part of prayer is putting our prayer into words, telling him all about it. Jesus said in one place, your father knows what you have need of before you ask. Well, of course he does. He's God. But he still wants us to ask. Jesus knew 10,000 years ago what you would need later on this week, and you don't even know you need it yet. You have no idea what's coming at you later on this week. You're clueless. You're like, man, life is good. Wait till Wednesday. And 10,000 years ago, 10 million years ago, Jesus knew what you would need in that moment. Alec Motier has just given us a lesson in prayer. Number one, tell God how you feel. Number two, tell God where you hurt. Number three, tell God what you want. And be specific. Don't just pray, Lord, give me peace. Be specific. Lord, give me peace in this situation with this relationship because we've been estranged and I haven't talked to that person in a year and I want peace, God. Or God, don't just pray for wisdom. Say, God, give me wisdom. Say, God, I need wisdom in this situation to know exactly what I need to do. Give me wisdom in this. If you struggle to pray, just do this. Number one, tell God how you feel. Number two, tell God where you hurt. Number three, tell God what you want. You might be surprised. 30 minutes might go by and you'd be like, wow. If you like lists, if you're a list person, here you go. There's a list. It's free. Or if you prefer short statements that could fit on a ripped up piece of cardboard and were written with great penmanship, then here you go. Just pour your heart out to Jesus. As we saw in our prayer of confession and celebration this morning, living with an awareness of our need is a good thing. Living oblivious to our need is a dangerous thing. But bringing our every need to Jesus is a gospel thing. Where have you been living oblivious to your need of Jesus? Where have you been living as your own functional Savior? Where do you need to really just stop and take time to cry out to Jesus? Living with an awareness of your need, always feeling that sense of need is a good thing, Grace. Bringing your every need to Jesus is a gospel thing because faith connects you to Jesus. Look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Faith is simply crying out to Jesus. And faith has nothing to do with you. Faith has everything to do with God. Faith is you acknowledging that you can't be small enough, you can't be needy enough, you can't bow down on the ground low enough, or you can't be alive enough, you can't be good enough to live up to the righteousness of God's law. Faith is turning away from everything in ourselves to cast ourselves upon all that Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Faith is simply getting up and going to Jesus. 
Faith is simply crying out to Jesus and getting up and going to Jesus when you can't see. When you can't see what's happening in your life. Let me say that again. Faith is simply crying out to Jesus and getting up and going to Jesus when you can't see. When you can't see what's happening in your life. Bartimaeus didn't know why he was blind. He wasn't trying to figure out why life had dealt him this blow. He just heard Jesus' voice and called out to him. See, sometimes life is so dark, you can't see. You don't know why things, the way, why things are the way they are. You don't know why what is happening is happening. And all you can hear is Jesus' voice. That's all you need. His word, his promises, his gospel. In faith, you collapse on his word, his promises, his gospel. So Bartimaeus cried out, Son of David, because he knew his Bible. What he knew of Jesus made him cry out to Jesus. What he knew about Jesus made him cry out to Jesus. So let's make it personal right now. Let me ask you, number one, what's going on in your world? Number two, what do you know about Jesus? What's going on in your life? Let's get you stressed out and worked up and you can't sleep and you can't eat and you just, ah, what's going on in your world? And then what do you know about Jesus? And you just pair those up. You link those two things up. You take what's going on in your world and you pair it up with what you know about Jesus. That's faith. So there's another list for you to help you pray if you're a list person. Number one, Take what's going on in your life. And number two, pair it up with what you know of Jesus. In other words, take your heart and go to Jesus. And then take heart because Jesus is calling you. As we approach the Lord's Supper today, as we celebrate communion with Jesus, verse 34 is for you. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. And as we come to this table, take your sins and then pair them up with what you know about Jesus. He's merciful. He forgives you. He loves you. He lived a perfect life for you. He died in your place. And Christian, he can't remember your sins. And that's what you do. You pair your sins up with all of that, all that you know about Jesus. Take your sin, all of it, And pair it up with the fact that he's merciful, that he forgives you, that he loves you, that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died in your place, and that he can't remember your sins. You pair all of your sin up with that. You don't have to confess your sins to Google. You can confess them to Jesus. You have the freedom to confess just as if you were taking an online survey and nobody's in the room, meaning you can be real with Jesus. You can be honest, not hide anything. That's what he desires. So that flashing cursor in the search engine of your heart is screaming at you this morning. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Just pour your heart out to Jesus. Let's do that now as we prepare our hearts for this meal. Jesus, we come to you today because you made the way possible. And we admit that we are sinners and we ask you to forgive us. We admit that we have sinful thoughts, sinful words. We do sinful things and there's sinful motives that are driving everything that we're thinking and saying and doing. 
And we just confess that and we bring that to you this morning. We want to pair up our sin, our rebellion with you, who you are and what we know about you. That you're merciful and gracious, kind, and that you love us. And so we ask you to forgive us of our sins. And then by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your grace, as we eat and drink this meal, Father, as we uh, feast on you by faith this morning, may you strengthen us by your grace to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.